<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. You have no idea how good it feels to say that again. The show has been silenced for months by our winding road to a new home, and now, here we are, back together with old and new friends alike. This is the most chaotic year of my life, that's for sure, and I'm guessing that most of us can say the same thing. The pandemic has incapacitated us in so many ways, and we are strangling on the social and political divides. In a time when we all need to be on the same side, we are turning to guns about whether or not to wear a mask to protect not only ourselves, but each other. It's a time when we are not able to gather in cinemas to watch movies together, where we are on our own. I've watched the world of film and television implode, publishing, putting on the skids, and even this very podcast was thrust into the middle of the controversy of Fangoria and its own internal issues. All of the podcasts on the Fangoria Network acted in unison to leave what we felt was a place where we could not, in good conscience, continue to work. My new book was published by them, and now the publisher has fallen to pieces. But Fangoria is back now under new ownership, but our show, like several under the Fangoria Podcast Network, has found a new and welcoming home. It's time to come together, and we can start within the genre. We can't go to the movies together, but we can share experiences with one another on social media, have watch parties via Netflix, recommend books on Goodreads, share lists of favorite TV and movies. We watch our movies online now, and it's tough to find the gems among the thumbnail art provided us, so let's make and share our favorites. There are no multi-million dollar ad campaigns to draw us to the cinema, so we are on our own. But we are on our own collectively. Sharing is caring, right? This isn't the stand where 99% of the world's population died off. That was fiction. This is more sinister and yet more controllable. We can social distance, wear a mask, just be smart. It's worked overseas and it can work here. So let me know about the best horror films and books and TV for quarantine viewing, and I promise to do the same. Our guest to help us relaunch Postmortem is a master of many media in the horror world, books, graphic novels and comics, television and movies. It's in his blood, and now it's in ours. So, with no further ado, let's talk about the sanguinary life of Joe Hill. So, Joe, we haven't seen each other since you were, like, 20 years old. Uh, I was just a puppy. You I were... was just a puppy the last time we hung out. Yeah, you were a production assistant on the stand. And by the way, a damn good one. 
Well, if you get, you know, if you get the, uh, if you, if you get the coffee orders right and you keep the walkie talkies charged, uh, you know, um, you're in good shape. I have advanced. So my career in film and TV has taken a big leap from my production assistant days. Um, I, you know, I've been an executive producer on the lock and key TV show for Netflix and on, and on the Nosferatu show for AMC. And it took me a while but I have now perfected the art of being a quality executive producer. So it turns out to be good at that job. What you need to do is eat everything on the craft service table, <laughs> um, sit in someone else's chair, and, and, and have a noisy, obnoxious phone call and wander through the background on your phone completely oblivious as a pair of actors act their hearts out in like the most emotional scene of, you know, of that episode. And if you can do all that, you too can be an executive producer. You have aced it. <laughs> Definitely got it down. Uh, well, let's talk about all the different media that that has been a, a part of your career. I'm a, I mean, both your parents were uh, our novelists, our writers. Yeah. You started writing. Did you start with the idea of writing books or doing comic books or, or working in film? What was your intent from the very beginning when you set fingers to keyboard? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, to just address the elephant in the room, um, uh, I am I am um, the child of um, uh, best-selling novelist Tabitha King, um, uh, who's you know um, um, I think a great American voice and and has uh, written some um, some of the best novels ever written about working-class life in Maine. Um, she married a guy who has also written some books. Um, and has had uh, some success of his own in the in the horror genre. Um, you know, I look at some of what my dad has written. You know, um, he wrote The Stand, and and you know, I say to myself, this is a guy who has a future in this business. You know, <laughs> if he wants to keep at it, you know, if he keeps piling away, maybe you could teach him a few things. <laughs> I don't. Truthfully, I think my dad has forgotten more stuff about the art of writing than I'm ever going to learn. Um, I was actually thinking about this. There's, um, I, I am literally half the man my father is. Um, and, and when I say that, I have the numbers to prove it. Because I was thinking, I read, I realized I read three books a month and that my dad reads six books a month. Wow. Okay. And, and that is consistent. That's not just that's not that's if you average it out over the last 10 years i have the numbers to prove it so um he literally reads twice as much as i do and i feel the same way about his you know his gifts as a writer and and um you know you got to do what you can with what you got well it's it's great that the whole family i mean you and your brother owen and your dad and your mom all being novelists all being really good at what you do. And one of the most admirable things about your career is how it began. The reason you took on the name Joe Hill yeah. was to not be Joe King, son of, but it's right. a, an incredibly admirable thing. Tell me how that went about and how many publishers it took to get um, the 20th Century Ghosts uh, yeah. to publication. Yeah, so, so I was a super insecure kid. Um, I, I had, um, real self-esteem issues and I had this terror of getting published because I had famous parents. 
And for my own self-worth, I needed to know that when I sold a story, I sold it for the right reasons because someone genuinely liked it and wanted to publish it, not because they saw a chance to make a quick buck by publishing the son of someone, you know, son, son of a celebrity. Um, and, and so around the time I was 18, 19, not long after working on the stand, I began writing novels with the eye of possibly selling them. And I began to put them out on the market under this pen name under Joe Hill, which is actually a shortened version of my, my middle name, Joseph Hillstrom. You know, I'm, um, so, um, I'm named after the Joan, the Joan, my parents loved that Joan Baez song. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night. So that's what I was named after. Um, but, um, so I began to write books in college and I wound up writing four novels. The first of them was paper angels, which was a Cormac McCarthy pastiche. Mm. Um, I entered that one in a contest in Florida. It was the Ernest Hemingway first novel contest. I didn't take first. I didn't take second. I didn't take third. I didn't even place, but I did get an honorable mention. And, um, and on the basis of that honorable mention, I was able to get an agent, a fellow named Michael Cho. And Mickey was my Mickey, Mickey to his friends. And Mickey was my agent for a decade without ever meeting me. And over that decade, he never found out about my parents. Um, wow. And it was a little, it seems hard to believe, but it was a little bit easier. It was easier than people think. Um, because I didn't, we didn't communicate through email because email was kind of just coming in. It wasn't mm. ubiquitous. So when we wrote to each other, we wrote letters like through the post. Um, and, and, Hard you know, to imagine, yeah. It is hard to imagine. It is like yeah. a very different, it is like ancient history. Um, we never met for meals. We talked about it, but I always put him off because I didn't want him to see my face, <laughs> you know? And so we never met for meals or anything. There is a strong physical resemblance. Yeah, so, so well, we'll get to that. We'll get to the, we'll get to the resemblance in a second. <laughs> okay. but so, so anyway, so Mickey wound up representing four novels that he was never able to sell for me. Um, you know, I think the best of them, there was, Paper Angels. Uh, there was a young adult fantasy novel called The Evil Kites of Dr. Lords, um, uh, which, which, which hilariously we were trying to sell before Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. And we were told it was too grown up for kids and mm-hmm. too childish for grown ups. And there was no such thing as a crossover YA market. Interesting. Which is, in retrospect, is hysterical, but, you know, so anyway, so Evil Kites of Dr. Lords didn't fly, uh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> it was there regardless. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I, I spent three years writing a big epic fantasy novel uh, called The Fear Tree, um, and The Fear Tree actually was my first attempt to explore some ideas that ultimately I, I examined in my second novel, Horns. The Fear Tree was about a guy, it was set in a fantasy world, so we're talking like J.R.R. Tolkien, sword and sorcery, you know, breastplates, helmets, all that, mm-hmm. you know, people calling each other my lord and stuff like that. But so it was about this guy who as a, as a child escapes a pogrom and, and hides inside a tree with a door carved into it. And um, he reappears 10 years later and he's blind and he has the power to know what people are afraid of. So anyone he's close to, he knows what frightens them. Um, and I worked on that novel for three years and, 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 and still believe that it had some, some qualities to was very close to a publishable novel. But that one was turned down by every publisher in New York, every publisher in London. And then for a final kick in the nuts, it was turned down by every publisher in Canada. 
you know, which just, <laughs> it just goes to show no matter how low you sink, you can all, there's always further to fall. <laughs> um, so, um, so, and then there was another one called the Briars, um, that was kind of a John D McDonald killers on the road type novel. And mm-hmm. actually parts of the Briars became the first issue of lock and key. Um, so there's the, the character there's, you know, um, the two killers in the Briars were Al Grubb and Sam Lesser. And these are the two teenage killers who arrive at the lock house in Uh issue one of lock and key. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so there was, so Mickey represented me for, for like 10 years. And there was a lot of, a lot of years of not being able to sell novels, but I did learn to write a short story. And I did start to write short stories that had modest success that sold to either, you know, either respected but unknown literary magazines or British fantasy magazines. For some reason, I couldn't get arrested over in America, but the, but, <laughs> but the British publishers liked me. And so I had stuff published over there. Um, and then ultimately, I had enough good short stories to make a collection. Um, Mickey couldn't sell it to a big publisher, but someone pointed us towards PS publishing and said, Pete Crowther at PS publishing, um, is worth, you know, is worth a look, um, reach out to him. Um, and ultimately Mickey did sell the book to Pete Crowther in 2004, 2005. Um, his commission after 10 years of being my agent, his commission, um, on my first book would not have bought him a week of groceries. Um, <laughs> and that is friendship. That is friendship. And eventually, not long after we sold the rights to PS Publishing, I, I told him the truth about my dad. Mickey just said very mildly, you know, Joe, if I had known the truth, I would have kept it a secret. Um, uh, and I said, I said, I, I know, I, I believe you, Mickey. I think that's true. But for me, I, I, needed, I needed to be certain that no one knew. Um, so, but that was really pretty much the end of the pen name. I mean, not long afterwards, I sold my first novel heart shaped box, uh, to William Morrow, but by heart shaped box is, is quite an accomplishment. I mean, it's a novel that feels like someone who's been at it for a long time. Now you had these four unpublished novels that, but this feels like a very, um, experienced author. And well, I had good it, teachers. <laughs> you did indeed. You did indeed. Did, did your family members, um, did they act as readers for you? Or did they you want everything. to keep this private? No, they read everything over the years. And they was, you know, um, <laughs> uh, my mom and dad are always my first readers. Um, now, you know, and my uh, my wife, Jillian, is, is my first reader as well. And they all give really good advice. And I listen to them, you know. Um, right. They've been at it a long time and they have good instincts. And I've actually internalized their views so much that I'm sort of at a point now where I almost don't need to show them something to know what they'll say about it. Right. Um, at 47 so, with how many books under your belt and TV yeah, shows and movies. Oh, 48, happy, I'm afraid. 48. Happy birthday. <laughs> oh, thank you. You know, um, I, had a, I had a publishing dinner a year or two ago. And I was sitting there with five people in publishing and suddenly realized I was the oldest person at the table. Boy, is that a moment, man. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you know, I'm not, I, I, I was so used, I sort of think of myself as the kid. <laughs> I'm a half tell a century me. old almost, man. Tell me about it. <laughs> uh, when, when did it happen? When did you, when was the first time you had a meeting about a movie or a TV show or something like that, where you sat down and suddenly realized 
you were older than everyone at the table. Well, I got a later start than you did. Um, my first writing job was on Amazing Stories. I was 33 years old when that happened. What did you do for Amazing Stories? I was I wrote or co-wrote 10 of them, and I was the story editor for season one. They ought to get you so, back for the new run. Well, that would have been nice. Um, it's not getting a whole lot of you. attention. They, <laughs> yeah. could, they could use you. Well, that's okay. I'm I'm happy where I am. I would love to complete that circle and do an Amazing Stories episode. I think it would be fantastic. But uh, so far, that's not in the cards. I don't know if it's even going to be renewed. You know, um, you know, Amazing Stories had the best unknown Steven Spielberg film. Um, Which was the mission. Was the one, the mission. The mission yeah. starring Kevin Costner and Casey Shamasco. And it, it was, was so you know, good. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I actually, I actually uh, uh, wound up with a copy a couple of years ago and watched it. it. Was just as good as I remembered, you know. And I think they're remaking it. I think they're remaking it for the Apple series. I, I hope they do. I hope there's a second season because the first season was all new stuff, and you know, the original Amazing Stories was kind of a star fucking show. All, all most of the directors. <laughs> were famous directors. It was Martin Scorsese, yeah. and yeah, I yeah. was able to write his episode. It oh was Robert God, Zemeckis. Uh, Robert I Zemeckis. And I, I didn't know Scorsese did an Amazing Stories. He did Mirror, Mirror with Sam Waterston, yeah, which hey. kind of was inspired a little bit, the lead character, by your dad when I was before I'd ever met him. Wow. Uh, and uh, uh, Robert Zemeckis and Joe Dante did episodes that I wrote the screenplays for. And so that was my beginning. And uh, that was my film school. Was that before Zemeckis had done uh, Roger Rabbit? Yes. Or after? Yeah. Didn't they do before. an animated? Didn't they do an animated episode? They did Family Dog that was directed by Brad Bird, who has oh my done God. so many great things. Yeah. So Didn't Family Dog become a thing? It became a series, a very short-lived series. But the first episode, the first one, was an episode of Amazing Stories. It's so. a weird. I tell you what, it's you know the pop culture maze. You wander around and it's by alleys, and you never know what you'll find. That's great. Well, well, let's talk about that because you've worked in comic books, you've done graphic novels, you've done television. There's been stuff that's adapted from your stuff that you uh, have not necessarily written yourself. Right. Right. And. What was your first reaction? Maybe it was Horns, I guess, was the first thing to be produced based on your work? Yeah, so so um, Heart-Shaped Box, Heart Box uh, looked like it was going to be a film for Warner Brothers, handled by, um, oh man, help me out, uh, Crying Game, Jordan. Neil oh, Jordan. Neil Jordan, yeah. Yeah, Neil Jordan was going to write and direct, but it didn't happen because there was the writer's strike of 2008. And oh, yeah. he went. He went back to Ireland to do a little Irish movie, which honestly probably is, would be better anyway. I mean, like, we, is not what we want to see Neil Jordan do anyway. <laughs> oh, I'd but, love to see him do Heart Shaped Box. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, somebody to give him a call. It's still available. <laughs> yeah. um, but so, so uh, almost by chance, the second novel got developed into a film starring Daniel Radcliffe, directed by Alexandra Aja. Um, Aja had, there's this rule in Hollywood, you do one for them and you do one for yourself. And Aja had done one for them. He did a Piranha movie that was a big, big hit, you know, right. for, 
for the money. I mean, it's always about the money, you know? So he spent $7 million making the Piranha film. He made him $50 million. It was time to do one for him. And they, people said yes. And so he wound up doing an adaptation of Horn starring Daniel Radcliffe and Juno Temple. Uh, Max, Man Max Manella was in it. Um, David Morse. Uh, you know, the cast was absolutely stacked. Um, and, and it's an interesting piece of work. Um, it was... Um, the first third plays like very black comedy. It's very, very funny. Right. The second third um, plays convincingly like tragedy. Um, the last third, I'm not sure completely lands. The last third, you know, um, if, if the film was not a big hit, it's, I think it's sort of beloved as a cult flick. You know, it's a midnight movie. Right. Um, I think what stopped it from being a hit was they never really solved the final third. Mm -hmm. um, There's always I, like a book you could go to, you know? Well, I know. I mean, they didn't want to do exactly what was in the book because in the book, in the book, Ig, my hero, has inherited all the powers of the devil and he resists it for most of the book. But mm -hmm. in the final third, he discovers, discovers that he actually wants to do Satan's job and punish the sinners. So it becomes a kind of Charles Bronson revenge story. It lures them, it lures them into a trap to get even. Um, he's got a little get even medicine for them on the end of his pitchfork. And, and I think that that was a very dark turn and that they were a little uncomfortable with going in that direction. That they wanted Ig to embrace his humanity, hmm. not not the satanic aspects of what his power had lent him. And I think, I think it's possible that emotionally and thematically they were actually correct, that that would have been more satisfying. But ultimately something has to work on the level of narrative first before it can be correct emotionally. Or if it doesn't make sense, if it doesn't make sense on the narrative level, it doesn't matter how pure it is emotionally. Um, viewers will be like, huh? Why do you do that? You know, right. and, and ultimately it involved Ig um, in the film opening himself up and making himself vulnerable to a man who had murdered his girlfriend, had already tried to murder him, and was clearly just going to try to murder him again. And so I think people were like, why would he put himself in that situation? You know, he already knows what's going to happen and that he's going to die. Um, so, yeah. Well, tell me how it felt to, you know, you'd gone two movies based on your dad's material. Some yeah, of them sure. great, some of them terrible, some of them in between. Here's the first time, here's an adaptation of your work. You didn't write yeah. the screenplay. Um, and other people were involved in taking your story and putting it on the screen. And the, yeah. in terms of adaptation, seeing Daniel Radcliffe as your lead character and the way the horns are implemented, the way the story unfolds, how did that feel first time for you? as your first experience in this different line of your storytelling. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. And I mean, even with my criticism of the final third of the picture, I prefer the film to the book. Um, you know, and, and the reason for that is, you know, it was my second novel, and I poured everything I knew into my first novel and had tremendous fun with it. And then, and I had spent 10 years in deep cover. So, hmm. so... I had sort of gotten used to being anonymous and then it came out, it, 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 you know, the book was a hit, it was reviewed well, but also there was this extra thing, which is people found out about my dad. And so it was, it went bigger than I ever thought it would be. 
Um, um, I never really, it, and so I think it's actually like, you know, I had learned to deal with failure. I was well adapted for failure. I was not well adapted for success. Ah. And, and, you know, I, in the wake of that success, I did all the usual American things. Um, I had a nervous breakdown and I got divorced. Oh, um, great. you know, and, and, yeah. and it was, and it was almost, it was so hard to write the third novel and, and it's, it is, you know, as, as a writer, as an artist, the hardest thing I ever did was get that second novel written. And I'm really proud of it. And I think it's a good book. And I know that people have enjoyed it. And, um, you know, um, but for me, it's hard to look back at. I don't enjoy the novel um, like my other books, because all I remember is how incredibly unhappy I was when I wrote it, which does sound a little bit corny. I mean, it's kind of like it's kind of like, you know, when some pretentious musician is like, I don't know how people could dance to that song. I was so sad when I wrote it. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God, get over yourself. Yeah, but that pain is what is required for an artist to do really good work, to do perceptive and introspective work, like Nosferatu is filled with pain and deeply rich emotion. And and I, I you can't express that if you haven't experienced it. I think that's true. I think that's true. And I also think inevitably this is part of what we want writers and storytellers, directors and to do is to help us understand the pain in our own lives. And if you haven't been there, it's hard to talk about it, you know? Yeah. And so um, I had, so the third novel was Nosferatu, which has been turned into the TV show on AMC. Um, and I sort of, you know, um, I, I love ELO, you know, I oh, love Jeff Lynn. Oh, man. Oh, man. my idol. Oh. Yeah, I love ELO. They're so great. And it was weird because like Jeff Lynn sort of stopped making music and just produced other people for a while. And, uh, you know, if there are ELO fans listening, you ought to check out his new album, which just came out. Um, and he's got a song on it. The very last song on the album is called Songbird. And it's about music coming back to him, you know, coming oh. back into his life and how happy it made him and how good it feels. Um, and that's kind of how I felt about Nosferatu. I felt like, oh, yeah, this is really fun. Playing make-believe is a really good time. I forgot that it can be like this. <laughs> um, well well, what about Nosferatu? Now that it's in season two, you've gone past the book. So how yeah. does that feel? The book was a thing unto itself that was not going to continue. It's self-contained. Right. Now, well, yeah, well, so so it's a big world. I mean, so Nosferatu um, is the story of, um, you know, a very bad man uh, who has a car that runs on human souls instead of gasoline. And he's been kidnapping this guy, Charlie Manx, has been kidnapping children and draining them of their souls for over 100 years. And in the course of the novel, he is opposed by a young woman named Vic McQueen, who has a fast ride and a supernatural talent of her own. And they do battle with one another over the course of 30 years. Um, and so the TV show has explored all that, but it's also started to expand out to explore the rest of that world. So right. this is a world of people who have um, the ability to bend reality in some interesting way. And usually they need an instrument, a tool, a kind of wrench to deform reality. So Vic McQueen has a Triumph Bonneville motorcycle. Charlie Manx has a Rolls Royce Wraith. There is a woman named Maggie Lee who is a librarian who has a bag, a bottomless bag of Scrabble tiles. And she can ask a question and then reach in and scatter tiles um, and the tiles always spell the answer to her question. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yes. You know, and so the TV show has started to explore more characters like that, and I've been kind of nudging them in that direction. I uh, in the second season, I I introduced a character for my game, a character called the Hourglass. The Hourglass has a little, you know, sand glass, um, and he'll come up to you and he'll say, "Can I have a minute of your time?" And if you're foolish enough to say yes, he can turn over the hourglass, that minute hand, you know, the minute, the sand dial, uh, sand glass, and then and then until the sands run out, you have to do whatever he says. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it actually seems to be more of a minute glass in the TV show. Than uh, yeah, glass. I guess you so. Know, and, but I Strictly think that, I think speaking. That, yeah, but I think that the minute glass doesn't sound as good as the hourglass. Also, Definitely. I wonder if maybe he's got a bunch of sand, you know, that he just carries around the most convenient one, but maybe he's got a few others. So you are a genuinely involved executive producer who does contribute to the direction the series takes. <laughs> it's because funnier though. Of them are. It's yeah. funnier. It's funnier if I insist that I just eat cross service. But yeah, I mean, I've tried that, to. That's true. I, I've tried to. I've tried to read the scripts and make suggestions. I've been a little more hands on with Lock and Key um, mm-hmm. than Nosferatu. So Lock and Key is based on this comic book um, I created with my soul brother Gabriel Rodriguez. Um, Gabe is the artist. He drew every single issue of Lock and Key. Um, literally, he designed my wedding ring. I'm, I'm, you know, Gabe wow. designed the ring that I wear on my hand and the ring that my wife wears on hers. Um, you know, so we have this kind of creative brotherhood. And Lock and Key is about uh, an ancient New England mansion um, full of enchanted keys. Every key unlocks a different door and activates a different supernatural power. Um, and the comic book series ran for about uh, a decade. Um, and told a complete story. It's six books, tells a complete story with a beginning, middle, and an end. And then after several false starts, you know, this is great showbiz stuff, you know, after several false starts, it eventually became a streaming series on on Netflix. Um, and I, I co-wrote the pilot for, for that series. But boy, it had a journey. We also filmed a pilot for Fox and a pilot wow. for Hulu. So um, you've done three different versions of it. I've done I've done three different versions of it, and actually, and it's, actually, it's interesting because I think each of those pilots are really good on their mm-hmm. own. But you can see with each iteration, it became more what it needed to be to succeed on TV. Right, and so and, well, go ahead. was was there a difference between creating a show for AMC, which is a commercial network that has broadcast right. standards and commercial breaks? Uh, and Lock and Key, which is the final version that exists for us today, which is self-contained with no commercial breaks or or censorship issues? Yeah, uh, so um, um, everyone listening to this is now about to hear me revealed as a Hollywood asshole because I've I've started to pick up the terms. So AMC AMC is linear television. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so, and, and, um, and of course, Netflix is the king of streaming. Um, linear is in a strange place because it's been contracting for decades as people for over a decade, as people shift to the streaming services, which can be more explicit, which don't, aren't held to the same broadcast standards as, you know, a channel like AMC. On the other hand, on the other hand, you know, um, there are companies like AMC with a depth of institutional knowledge about how to make a good TV show. And, you know, they can make something like Breaking Bad and have a big hit with it and have big success and then license it to Netflix and, you know, and build out their audience. Um, so there's definitely still a place for linear television. And AMC has been pretty supportive of a fairly dark vision. Um, I mean, actually, it's interesting, you know, um, uh, 
Netflix can do whatever they want and can be as explicit as they want. And AMC is a little more constrained. But actually, I feel comfortable saying that Nosferatu is a horror show, while Lock and Key is more of a fantasy show. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I would say, um, you know, Carlton Cuse has been, Carlton Cuse, who is, was the, you know, a producer, lead writer and director for Lost, um, uh, producer, writer, you know, behind Jack Ryan, Bates Motel. Um, Bates yeah. Motel. Bates Motel is strange. <laughs> he loves the genre and he's really good at it. Um, you know, so Carlton Cuse handled Lock and Key and he really cracked it. He's really the person who figured out how to make it succeed on television. The earlier iterations of Lock and Key were much more horror. They were mm. much more. The Fox version was horror. Um, the Hulu version was horror and explicit horror. Um, you know, I wrote the pilot for that one too. And at one point, you know, one of the heroes bashes this bad guy, Sam Lesser in the face and peels off half his fucking face, man. I mean, like, (laughs) you know, like there's this giant flap of skin and glistening bone and muscle underneath it and a real grizzly and stuff. And I love those versions of the show. But, but ironically, the least explicit one is the one on Netflix. The, it's the very PG-13. It's, it's very family-friendly in a lot of ways. You know, that certainly, certainly the Netflix version is much more family-friendly than the comic, which occasionally goes in, you know, a really explicit, rancid direction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> Mick laughs approvingly. You know? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> the, the, uh, you know, I mean, because the thing is about Lock and Key, the comic book is it always was a little bit of more explicit Harry Potter. You know, it was always kind of, um, you know, uh, what if, what if we took Harry Potter in a more naughty direction with blood and more gruesome beasties and sex and, and people just, and ultimately, and ultimately people just doing things that are sort of like morally, you know, morally fucked up. But true, but also sort of true that like even our heroes do things that disappoint us. You know, I mean, it's television goes there now. It's Breaking Bad was a great example of that. I think television goes more emotionally deep than feature films do these days. Oh, totally. Absolutely. And they go to dark places that that feature films which need to reach out to millions and millions of people. Well, eventually, when we get our movie theaters back. Whereas television now, because there are the 500 channels and nothing to watch, that there are the <laughs> the options of seeing, taking places in a darker place. It doesn't have to appeal to millions of people. You know, it can appeal to a smaller segment of that population as long as it's supported by the subscribers. And it's fascinating that TV had to grow up because of streaming. So when my dad did the stand with you, I remember him saying, you know, all through that time period and before the stand and after it as well, that there was the potential to do a novel on TV, that a TV show could be novelistic, um, could be Dickensian. um, He He loved that term, a novel for television. Yes. Because he felt freed by that concept of just doing four two hour movies and you're done, you know? Uh. So so I think that his vision of what was possible came true. It just yeah. took about 20 years longer than he thought it would. Because yeah. when you look at Breaking Bad, what you see is the great American novel. 
you know, yeah. about yeah. so many themes about, you know, about healthcare, about family, about entrepreneurship, about addiction, know, about, about addiction. Know. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's sort of the ultimate American story. And you could, you could really argue that the whole show operates as either one book or possibly a trilogy of three books. It's immensely novelistic and very satisfying for that. And, you know, Shows like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad and The Americans have pointed the way towards this rich novelistic experience. Um, and, and, and movies have been revealed for what they are, which is, which is beautifully wrought short stories. When they're mm -hmm. done well, they're usually short or maybe novellas. I mean, like right. I would say something like a Scorsese film is probably more of a novella than yeah. a, a short story. But, but that's... Um, um, that seems to me like like now those art forms have discovered what they're supposed to be. And hey, it only took film a hundred years. <laughs> only a hundred years. It only took t it only took TV a hundred years to figure out what it, what it was meant to be. That's pretty now, good for an art form. Now, what about you? Uh, uh, are you interested in being a filmmaker as well as a film writer? Um, I would does directing appeal to you? I would only want to jump into directing if I had a chance to do the reboot of Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> if, if someone offered me the chance, if someone offered me the chance to direct, to write and direct the uh, 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 a relaunch of Maximum Overdrive, man, I'd jump at that in a second. And look, the time is ripe. Okay, so basically, they're all the self-driving vehicles. So it's no longer a comet that sets him off. It's it's a, a virus in the elect in in the electronics that sets him off. And so you've got these giant Tesla semi trucks, you know, wiping everyone out. And then you know, I mean, I think it could be great. So, Hollywood, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say I would say you know, I love to write screenplays. Um, it's it's refreshing. I feel like I've had some experience there because I've written so many comics. And many of the skills are transferable. Um, but, you know, I mean, we're going back to the thing about me being 48, man. You know, it's like I only got so much time. Maybe I ought to mostly be writing books. Or maybe you ought to be experimenting. Well, that's true. Before time runs <laughs> out. <laughs> that's right. So what, what does give you the most pleasure? Uh, is it writing a novel? Is it writing uh, comic books? Uh, is it producing a TV series? Um, I mean, I, or yeah. are you just a storyteller? Yeah, I mean, I love it all. I love it all. It's all really fun, and it's all such a privilege to get to do it. You know, I mean, you've got to be, you've got to feel. You know, if you get to, if you get to spin bullshit for a living, you've got to feel grateful. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of the best jobs in the world. Um, um, even even the hard time I had writing horns was about stuff in my personal life, not about the art you know ultimately um you know think about how much harder it is to like run a lot work on a laundromat or something yeah. like that i mean this is a real privilege um, we are lucky to be able to be doing what so many people wish they could be doing and and you know doing it for years yeah uh, is yeah, a total if privilege to, if you get to stick around for a while i mean like that's the other thing is think about how lucky it is to just get to stick around and and you yeah. know um the uh i like it all i mean i'm probably best at writing comics you know that's oh. the form because in a lot of ways i was a comic book writer before i was a novelist you know my big breakthrough i talked about not being able to sell novels 
But I did start to sell short stories. And eventually, on the strength of one of those stories, which won some prizes and got in a best of collection, a talent scout at Marvel Comics gave me a chance to write Spider-Man. Oh, wow. Uh, and so before I ever had a novel, you know, my first, to me, that felt like validation. That felt like my big break was writing an 11-page Spider-Man story for Spider-Man Unlimited. Um, and shortly afterwards, I began to develop pitches. I worked up, you know, a bunch of different ideas. And um, one of those ideas was the concept for Lock and Key which Marvel passed on and DC passed on, Dark Horse passed on. But eventually, <laughs> uh, the guys at IDW took a swing at it. Um, and I think that we had signed the paperwork and we were develop developing it before Heart Shape Box came out. Um, wow. So that was kind of like, Lock and Key was kind of like the last thing I sort of snuck in under the mm -hmm. wire before it all came out about my pen name. I'm not even sure about that, but I, I think I think we sort of snuck in. I, I was able to sell that one, you know, before people found out. I'm not, you know, anyway. so. Um, so I feel really comfortable. I feel at home writing comic books. Um, I, although I still haven't written that. I mean, my peers, you know, my peers in the comic business, guys like Brian K. Vaughn, who wrote Why Last Man and Saga, Ed Brubaker, who writes the criminal comics, um, Matt Fraction, who writes Sex Criminals. And these guys have written hundreds of comics. I've only written like 50. Steve you know? Niles. Steve, Steve Niles. Niles. One I mean, of the Steve greats. Niles has probably yeah. written like, well, he's probably written, he probably, could, he probably doesn't know how many comics he's written. 500 plus probably you know, and, um, probably i i um, love writing novels i love writing novels not because it's easy but because it's hard those kind mm -hmm. of seem you know after you finish one those kind of seem to remain a part of your life in a way the comics don't quite the comics are a little more ephemeral i didn't know if i could do it until i you know fairly uh well into my adulthood that i finally did it and now i've got a couple under my belt and it's uh, really it's kind i of didn't a nice know you were feeling. writing comics not comics i mean novels yeah oh, oh okay yeah. all right well, no. you to take a, well if you like comics if you've written for yeah. you've written a lot of scripts you should take a stab at writing comics yeah maybe i will i know um, a guy i know a guy who has a great horror imprint you could talk about that who's doing horror <laughs> comics you should get in touch with him now there's something about this Hill House that uh, <laughs> I I see that Hill House is going to be collecting comics into books, yeah. into hardcover books. Tell me about that uh, new venture. Yeah, um, so I came to DC Comics a couple of years ago with a pitch, and the pitch was basically, "What if we did Blumhouse for comics?" So I mm. love Blumhouse Studios. I'm I'm all admiration for what they've done. You know, Blumhouse has turned out. It seems like every year they turn out probably three really intelligent, really well-made horror films. Um, you know, uh, Get Out, um, It Follows, the, the Conjuring series, Paranormal Activity. I mean, the hits go on and on and on. <laughs> Oculus. Oculus was a great one. All the Mike Flanagan films that he's done. Oh, you know, he's terrific. Great. I love Mike's yeah. stuff. Um, you know, and so I was like, I, I said to DC, this has been a really golden period for for horror you see what's happening in film you see what's happening in tv you know with <clears throat> shows like the haunting of hill house an american horror story um you know there's been great stuff a whole whole new generation of terrific horror writers uh like grady hendrix and you know um, he's great yeah yeah you know and i'm like i'm like so let's you know let's get comics in on the action so we wound up doing uh, we're just wrapping it up now the first wave of hill house comics which was um five titles plus a backup feature i wrote two of them um 
plus the backup feature. So the backup feature is Sea Dogs, which is a revolutionary war story about how he used werewolves to beat the British. Because <laughs> um, obviously they had the best army in the world. We had to, I mean, how could we have beaten them if we didn't have werewolves? So, now that's a high concept. Yeah. So, um, so there's Sea Dogs. Uh, I did one called Basketful of Heads. Um, Basketful of Heads is a home invasion story about a young woman who finds herself battling for her life against four mysterious home invaders. The house she's in um, is not her house, but the, the house of a police chief on this small island, Brody Island. And he has a whole collection of Viking artifacts. And she defends herself with an axe that turns out to have a, a bizarre occult power. She can lop off a man's head in one stroke. But afterwards, the head keeps talking and screaming and bargaining, <laughs> still alive. Very reanimator. So there was yeah. basketball heads. And then there's another one called Plunge, which is like Arctic horror of the kind of John Carpenter's The Thing um, mm. variety. Um, and that's been really fun. That's drawn by Stuart Immonen doing some of the best art of his life. I mean, just unbelievable. But then we had like other titles. M.R. Carey, who did The Girl with All the Gifts. He wrote a comic oh, for yeah. us. Yeah, I love, I love Mike. He's such a good writer. So he did, he did one called The Dollhouse Family, which is very chilly, cerebral British horror. Feels like one of those, um, you know, one of those really scary shockers that came out of England, like the seventies, like the wicker man or something. Oh yeah. You know, and I love that kind of thing. So, um, Carmen Maria Machado, who was a national book award nominee for her first collection of short stories. She did one called the low, low woods, which is set in the small town of shutter to think Pennsylvania. And, (laughs) uh, it's got a whole David Lynch thing going on. These, um, these two young girls, are sort of investigating a set of mysteries in their town. And there are these packs of skinless men roving in the woods. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's great. It's really good. And then the last title was um, Daphne Byrne, which is written by a comics newcomer, uh, Laura Marks, who worked on one of the earlier iterations of Lock and Key, the TV show. So she's a screenwriter. Um, horror Grandmaster Kelly Jones, uh, who's oh, drawn yeah. so many great comics. He's the illustrator on that. And that one is kind of a 19th century feminist take on the omen. Um, So we piled up some really cool books and they came out as monthlies, but they'll all be collected in Hill House hardcovers. Uh, The first one of those is out uh, this September and that's Basketful of Heads. Fantastic. Well, let's talk about the influences because you work in so many different fields. You know, what were the comics that inspired you? What were the books that inspired you and the movies and the TV shows? Let's start with the with the comics. Yeah, <clears throat> well, so this is kind of weird, but my, the ones that really turned me on were the 1950s horror comics, uh, uh, Tales from the Crypt and, and the like. Um, and that seems weird because I'm old, but I'm not that old. You know, those are, <laughs> those are my dad's comics, not mine. But in the early 1980s, the Tales from the Crypt um, Vault of Horror, they were all collected as very handsome hardcovers. Yes. Um, they were reprinted as hardcovers. And my dad... Russ Cochran, yeah. Oh, God, I loved him so much. I was completely yeah. addicted, you know, totally wrapped up in them. And then, as, and I read them when I was probably way too young. I mean, you know, <laughs> here's something we all got to wrestle with. What if Frederick Wortham was right? What if those comics really did <laughs> corrupt and rot kids' brains? I mean, that could explain what happened to me. That's obvious. Yeah. You know, but tell me what happened to you too. It certainly did uh, rot me. Yeah. There's no question about it. So <clears throat> so there was that. And then and then in my teens, the writers I really loved were doing um they were British writers writing um um 
very sexually explicit, um, culturally relevant, um, uh, deeply disturbing horror comics for Vertigo. So it was Neil Gaiman writing Sandman. It was Alan Moore writing Swamp Thing. It was Grant Morrison who did a Batman comic called Arkham Asylum that is Mm -hmm. an unrepentant work of horror fiction. Absolutely horror fiction. Um, there was Jamie Delano who did Hellblazer, you know, and, and, um, I've talked a bunch of times about when I tried to write, there was a couple of years when I was trying to write the kind of stories that the New Yorker published, you know, Uh. and I couldn't do it. I, they were no good. Every one of those stories that I tried to write, the New Yorker style stories were garbage, you know, and, and, and in retrospect, it's easy to see why. I thought The New Yorker was boring. I never read it, you know? I was reading fucked yeah. up horror comics, you know? You got to be true to yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's all, you know? That's all you can do. You've got you've to write what excites you. Um, so I talk a lot about influence. Um, the last book I had out was a collection of short stories called Full Throttle, which included a couple stories I wrote with my dad. So I've, I've collaborated with my dad twice. We wrote a story called Throttle. Which it's a was, great collection and a great story. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah, that one. So that's you know what that one comes from. That's a that's that one was a story written to honor Richard Matheson's duel. Right, right. Which is, I mean, like talk about shades of influence. I mean, it's just like an influence. You know, uh, it's just like a you know one influence stacked on another. The Richard Matheson novella is wonderful, of course, very exciting. But then it was also one of the very first pictures directed by Steven Spielberg. Um, yes, and the for film, television. Yeah. The film is awesome. You know, it yeah. still holds up. It's a really, you know, it's a sun-dazed work of sort of like southwestern Hitchcock. It's fantastic. And Matheson worked with us on amazing stories, too. That's right, he did. That's right. Mm-hmm. I forgot. Yeah. Well, he always Matheson seems like he liked like TV more than he liked novels. <clears throat> yeah. We in the second season, we had a weekly panel. That was Zemeckis and Gale, Matheson, Michael McDowell, Spielberg. Uh, there was a round table, and we would read all of the scripts and make notes on all of them, suggestions. And it was this this brain trust around a, a, a conference table at Amblin that was one of the most exciting experiences of my life. So what you've just said sort of stirred two thoughts in me. The first is about Richard Matheson, but then we'll come back to table reads. But so I have a question for you about Richard Matheson that you might be able to answer because I feel like I'm going crazy. I've looked on Wikipedia. I've looked online. I can't find any proof of it. Okay. But I, I have the nutty impression that not only did Richard Matheson write novels and short stories and for TV and for film, is it true that he also wrote a couple songs for Paul Anka? I that, don't know. I that don't in the know. 50s, I know he was a very accomplished musician, but is it true that he also wrote a couple crooners for like, that, you know, the 1950s and 60s? It wouldn't surprise me. I don't know. You know, his son, Richard Christian, who with whom I have written a couple of times, um, is a very accomplished studio drummer. So it would not surprise me to to find that out, but I I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that. I don't have I don't have Richard Christian's uh, email, but if you do, you should drop him a note sometime and ask if it's tell him Joe Hill was wondering and he feels like he's going crazy because it's not on Wikipedia. And I I'll find to think, out. 
I've started to think maybe I just imagined it. Maybe it's not true, but I really feel like maybe it's true that he had actually also written. When I say he wrote pop songs, I don't mean he wrote the kind of pop songs we think about today. It was not right. rock and roll. You know, this was more kind of Vegas type thing. Yeah, Still, yeah. But right. yeah, I, I, I will find out for you. So the other for thing sure. I was going to say, and, and you may already know this, but this will be an interesting little bit of trivia for the listeners. So I love the Marvel films. Um, they have their flaws. They have their weaknesses. We can argue about whether they've been a suck on talent. You know, has there been an opportunity cost to all the Marvel films where, you know, guys like Robert Downey Jr., instead of making other films that might have been interesting, have wound up doing more Iron Man, you know. So there's, there's, so there's plenty of room to criticize the MCU. Um, that said, it is, it is the most amazing franchise of all time. They've made 22 pictures. Most of them have been really fun, you know, really well-made films. Um, did you know that they have, when they write those scripts, that they have comedy day? So what they'll do is, for Comedy Day, they'll have a script. So say they have Spider-Man Far From Home. <laughs> and I've heard this is true. Maybe it's not true. You know, I should I caveat, this is a rumor, but I have I'm, to believe it. I'm going to believe everything you tell me, Joe. Okay, all right, good. That's the, that's <laughs> the right approach. So what I have heard is they'll take a script like Spider-Man Far From Home, and they'll have a day where uh, Patton Oswalt and Bill Hader... And uh, um, uh, 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 not who's the other guy? Um, there's a few. There's a few names I've heard mentioned. They'll show up. Uh, oh, uh, Matt uh, D- uh, Harmon, Dan Harmon, Dan Harmon, ah, who wrote right. Community. He'll show Community, up. Right. So they'll all show up, and there'll be a great spread. You know, uh, sandwiches, Coca-Cola. You know, um, whatever you want. You know, um, and they'll read the script aloud. Like six or seven of the funniest people in Hollywood will read the script aloud and they'll wow. fuck off. They'll just goof, you know, they'll be <laughs> reading and they'll just goof off. And meanwhile, there's someone there like a stenographer who's typing, right. you know, who's right. taking notes. When the day is over, as they file out the room, they each get handed a check for five grand. Wow. They showed up for, they showed up for eight hours of work to make fun of the script. That's the whole gig is to spend a few hours in this room hanging with their buddies and making fun of the script. And when it's done, their funniest lines get slid into the screenplay. Patton is a friend of the podcast. We'll find out. I'd love to know. He may be sworn to secrecy. But I, but I you know, so, so what I'm saying to your listeners is if Patton Oswalt says it's true, you can all admire me for having the inside dope. But if he says it's not true, I'm still right because yeah. he has to say that because of his NDA with Marvel. Right. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, what about, what about authors or, or filmmakers that, who really inspired you, particularly in your formative years, your wonder years? So I started to talk about Full Throttle, and I was going to say – I. Full Throttle, in a lot of ways, is a book about influence. You know, uh, I have story notes in there and an introduction where I talk about, you know, um, any artist ultimately winds up with a whole set of creative mothers and fathers. You know, it's not there's it's you know, there's a whole genetic brew there of different voices um, who made an impression on them. So, you know, for me, the biggest influences are my parents. And I almost think that's a given. 
But there are a couple other big ones. Um, one, like a lot of guys in their late 40s, um, a lot of American men in their late 40s, Steven Spielberg. You know, Steven Spielberg is huge. Duel, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark. For me, you know, that's like that's like the Old and New Testament of cinema. Um, I have a little story that when your dad and I were going to do a project with Spielberg, your dad was at a hotel in Beverly Hills to be brought out to meet with Steven. And his limo stopped and picked me up on the way. And we're going into the Universal Studio lot at the gate. And your dad said to me, do you know what those people outside would think if they knew we were going in to see Steven Spielberg? <laughs> and I said, do you know what those people would think if they knew I was here with Stephen King going to see Steven Spielberg? <laughs> He was um, so excited like a kid. And it was so great that he is able to maintain that that freshness and innocence in, in that regard and, and excitement. It it's really great. Yeah, I mean I think my you know, I think my dad is is first and foremost an enthusiast. You know, yeah. he's a guy who appreciates other people's work and gets really excited, you know, gets yeah. um, about what they're doing. Yeah. Um, um Spielberg's a big one for me. Uh, I talk a little bit in the book in Full Throttle about how much I love Tom Savini, which is sort yeah. of a strange, it's sort of a strange influence for a writer to have. But, you know, when I was like, between the time I was 12 and 16, I read every single issue of Fangoria from cover to cover, you yeah. know, and yeah. I know Fangoria is going through some hard times. I haven't paid too much attention to why yeah. or what's up. Um wow. We'll talk. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. You know, <laughs> all I can say is there was a period, there was a period in the 1980s and early 1990s when Fangoria was my Newsweek. You know, right. when I read everything, I read the book reviews, I read every article. My dream job was writing the captions for Fangoria's photographs. Because, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, anyone who's opened a copy of the magazine knows, you know, you'll open it up and there'll be like some photograph with this guy's eyeball falling out. Right. And it'll be like, keep your eye out for the new picture from Mick Garris. <laughs> well, and your your reverence for Tom Savini showed up in the first episode of Lock and Key. Yeah, in yeah Tom TV is Right, Tom is in. We we got Tom into uh, Lock and Key. If you look close, Tom is also in Nosferatu. Um, right. There is an episode where Charlie Manx goes to this club, Parnassus, and Parnassus is a hangout for people who have disturbing gifts like him. And in there, there's a guy named Old Snake, and uh, it's Tom Savini, and you know, Old Snake looks at uh, uh, Charlie Manx and says, um, hey, Charlie, want to throw the bones? And he rolls the dice in their snake eyes, and then the camera pans up to uh, Tom's face, and Tom's eyes are snake eyes. And, uh, you know, Charlie Manx says, I'd never gamble with you, old snake. Um, so, yeah, Tom is something that we hear. Well, the joke of this, the joke of this, this is a deep cut here. But the, the thing about Tom is, you know, uh, I was, my dad and George Romero cast me in Creepshow, the film they made in the early 1980s that was a tribute to the gross-out horror comics of the 1950s. Yeah, I wasn't going to let this end without you talking about your your stellar role. Oh, well, you know, show. I mean, that was my, until Lock and Key, that was my last time on screen, you know. and But after you turn in a performance at that level, you know, you really <laughs> almost feel like it would be a mistake to like, you know, why mess with perfection? 
That's um, right. The uh, no, the um, so I was in this. I was in this film, Creep Show, um, directed by George A. Romero, who was one of my heroes and another one of my huge influences. And you know, um, my work has sort of circled back to George Romero again and again and again over the years. Um, but so this was made. The film was made in the nineteen eighties and um, early nineteen eighties, and the rules about child labor were very different then. And so there was no on-set babysitter. There was no on-set tutoring. There was no structure to look after me while mm. I was there. And it had not really crossed their mind that my dad, who was also on-set, was going to have to work a lot and couldn't watch me. And so they asked Tom to watch me. And I wound <laughs> up spending the entire week in Tom Savini's trailer watching him artistically disfigure movie stars and <laughs> and you know create unforgettable monsters like fluffy the creature in the crate um so you were babysat by tom savini tom savini was one of my earliest babysitters and <laughs> and he was just such a cool guy he was just so yeah. great you know um he was an artist i mean he put the artist in in makeup effects artist you know and and i don't think I don't think he had any sense of how to talk to children. He just mm -hmm. talked to me like I was another grown up. You know, I remember we talked a little bit about his experiences in Vietnam. Um, oh, and he yeah. said, you know, he said, he said um, his proudest accomplishment in Vietnam was not dying there. Um, you know, and, and, and like one day over sandwiches, we looked at a book of autopsy photos together. And I was not like, wow, that sounds horrible, but he wasn't. I, at a certain age, there's an age where if you see a photo of a dead body, you're terrified and upset and you go and you go and, you know, hide and, you know, but when you're a little bit older or a little bit younger, it's actually kind of fascinating information, you know, yeah. and I was just young enough. So I didn't know to be upset by it and instead just thought, oh, that's what a dead body looks like. I didn't know that, you know, mm. and, and, oh, you can die from that. I didn't know that. You know, the and, innocence of fascination. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and um, so anyway, so yeah, uh, I don't know how we got off into this, but Tom Savini, another big influence, and and I'm a big. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, so so to, just to prove that my life is a snake eating its own tail. Um, so so I was friends with Tom as a little kid. Um, we renewed our friendship um, about. Seven or eight years ago, I think, in Sitges, Spain, where he was a judge oh, yeah. on Fantastic Fest. And um, um, eventually, Greg Nicotero, who is the gross-out makeup effects master of the modern age, he's done. He is, in a lot of ways, he is the emotional center of the Walking Dead TV series. Yep. Um, Walking Dead is Greg's playground. And, and he was Tom's protege. So Greg gets torn apart in Day of the Dead. And right. he learned the art from Tom. Um, Greg launched a TV series based on Creepshow and mm -hmm. asked if he could have one of my stories for it. Um, I gave him one called By the Silver Waters of Lake Champlain. And that episode was directed by my hero, Tom Savini. Yay. How crazy is that? You know, sometimes Full life circle. is like a Dickens novel. Well, that full circle completes one for us as well. It's a perfect ending to this conversation that I wish could go on for hours. And Joe, I can't tell you how happy I am to have tracked this career from your, your production assistant job. So well done. <laughs> 
on the stand and to see all of these things happening for you just keep getting better and better and better and even though it's been so long since i feel since i've seen you i still feel a great sense of pride in that regard mick so. mick you were you were great to a uh you know a, a clueless dipstick uh who was <laughs> you know just sort of dipping his toe in the waters of film um i'm sorry we can't talk longer too we never even got into the story about how i caught fire on the first day on the stand okay tell it okay all right real briefly so i'm a production assistant. we have to make time okay for that. all right so yeah. real briefly uh i was a production assistant on it for anyone who's not clear on what a production assistant does nothing they are you know they are they are the 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 lowest man on the totem pole they run around and they collect coffees and they tell people when they need to be on set they do something called lockups which is basically telling people to shut up um, so that the, you know, uh, so we can have silence on the set, silence on the set. So on the very first day of the stand, I had this job on the stand, you know, I, it was like work experience. I was really excited. And I was wearing this oil cloth duster that was ankle length. And it was 5 a.m. Um, dawn, first day that we have, Mick has not shot a single shot for this, this, uh, for the show. And uh, I was sent to bring a couple actors to set. So I went up into the makeup trailer and I found a couple actors there. And there was a space here. It was very cold. We're up in the mountains. It was very cold. And so I'm standing with my back to the space heater. And, and, you know, and I told them they were due on set. And then I went outside. I'm just enjoying. I was so happy to be there. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in the film business. This is so cool. <laughs> and, and at some point, I realized there was this light flickering behind me. This golden light, like the rising sun or something. I couldn't figure out what it was. And there was a driver on the set, and he's just like Sam Elliott. Do you remember who that guy was? Who was the guy who was the driver? Looks just like Sam Elliott. Did TV oh, forever. Oh, yeah, I, I don't remember his name. Oh, but my God. He was, he was great. He was terrific. So this guy who was basically like the stand-in for Sam Elliott sees me walking across the parking lot and shouts, Joe, you're on fire! <laughs> And suddenly five dudes grab me, five different guys swoop in from nowhere, and I'm getting jerked back and forth like a rag doll. And they tear my 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 duster off me, my jacket off me. And the thing had caught fire on the space heater and ignited and burned all the way up so nothing was left except the sleeves and the collar. And then Whoa. and then someone, second assistant director Mike Sampson on yes. on the stand thought this was hysterical i was totally unhurt totally fine i'd lost my jacket but i was and the jacket was like this grizzly souvenir but it's totally fine um uh, uh mike sampson goes up to mick um they haven't haven't shot a shot first morning on the set and says oh my god mick you won't believe what just happened uh steve king's son almost caught fire wait till steve gets to set so we can tell him <laughs> and and mick's eyelids drop very low and he just shakes his head and no, I don't actually think we should say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Probably better. <laughs> so oh, anyway, no one, well, no one in the making of the stand, no one burned alive. Good news. That's true. Only close. Yeah. Well, what a first day that was for both of us. It was great. It was great. Mick, it was terrific talking to you. Take care of yourself. Joe, it's so good to see you again. Likewise. And stay uh, happy, safe, and healthy. You too. Be well. Hey, everyone listening, don't forget to wear a mask. That's right. Take care. Bye-bye. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>